We're continuing looking at the Old Testament book of Isaiah, except between chapters 39 and now at the beginning of chapter 40, the tone abruptly changes, just like a halting U-turn. In the preceding chapters, the focus was on the importance for God's people, the people of Judah at that time, to trust in God instead of man. And we got all excited when King Hezekiah of Judah demonstrated that trust in a moment of crisis as the Assyrians were preparing to invade God's people. But then in chapters 38 and 39, we saw his inconsistency. How he was not consistent in trusting in the Lord. And the last verses of chapter 39 announced bad news. That God's people as a punishment for their sin, would be sent into exile, carried away by the Babylonian Empire. And things seem dark. But chapter 40 breaks through like the morning sunrise. You know, like when the sun shines every once in a while. God does not give up on His sinful people. He is faithful even when they are unfaithful. And yes, there are consequences for our sin like the exile, but God will demonstrate His incomparable glory by saving this sinful people by His grace. How He does that is the wondrous mystery we just sang about. That between chapters 40 and 55 in Isaiah, there are all of these hints of this someone who is to come who is strong and yet weak, who is beautiful and yet ugly. He is the one who will come and reveal the mystery of the prophecies of Isaiah, that He is the grace and the comfort that God's people need as they are suffering the consequences of their sin. And so today, if you will, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 as we hear these words of comfort and hope to God's suffering people, his people in exile under the consequence of their sin. Isaiah chapter 40, you can find it in the Pew Bible beginning on page 712. Isaiah is roughly in the middle of the Bible. It's before the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort. Comfort. My people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? And marked off the heavens with a span. And closed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him counsel? Whom did He consult? And who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of knowledge? And taught Him knowledge? And and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the beauty of your word. For how it speaks, not just to people long ago, but people throughout all ages. That these words from well over 2,000 years ago still speak to us and to the human condition today and still point us to You, O God, to wait on You. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts and minds to understand. Use me, in spite of my own sin and weakness, to proclaim Your Word, to apply Your Word, to explain it, O God. And Lord, we pray that this would not be mere knowledge, but that it would be knowledge of You, a relational knowledge that leads us to live for You and to know You more, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 40 is given in the context of the fact that God's people are going to go into exile. They are going to be thrust out of the promised land. That's a bad thing. They don't like that. And so suffering became the big question of the day. That if our God is really all-powerful, then how could He let this happen? That's what Isaiah gets at in verse 27. Really the whole purpose of the passage there. Why do you say that my way is hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded by my God. It's as if God's people are saying, I thought God was for us. How come He isn't fixing our problems? Why is He not relieving my suffering? And that question persisted as long as God's people were in exile. But it is not a question just of 2,500 years ago. It is a question for today as well. Why isn't God relieving my suffering? Why hasn't He healed me of my cancer? Why hasn't He healed my marriage? Brought my wayward child to faith in Christ? Given me a new job or freed me from my addiction. Blessed me with the child I've been unable to conceive. How can this good, all-powerful God allow my suffering to continue? Why hasn't He relieved it? Chapter 40 is Isaiah's answer. And he answers that question by looking at the two doubts underneath that question. The first is, is God willing Is He willing to save His people? And the second is, is He able to save His people? The first question, is He willing, speaks to His commitment to His people, His love, His faithfulness. The second speaks to His power, His ability, how He can intervene in the world for us. And Isaiah answers those doubts for us. Assuring us of God's truth and His goodness. In verses 1-11, through He answers that first doubt. Is God willing to help us? And He does so with very simple words early by reminding them that He is their God. 
comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. My people. Your God. It is the very opposite of, honey, that son of yours in there. Not that that's ever been said by anyone, certainly. You are my people. I am your God. He assures them they are with, not without hope. God is for them. Yes, there have been consequences for their sin. Yes, they have suffered greatly as a result of that sin. And that is frustrating. But God has not abandoned them. In fact, God is coming for them. That's what we see in verses 3 through 5, where a way is prepared for the Lord. Now, living in southwestern Pennsylvania, we may not be familiar that there are places where roads are flat and also straight. My kids will ask me in the car, can we take a less bumpy road next time? I'm like, there isn't any. Sorry. But in these verses, God announces, essentially saying, nothing will stand in His way of coming for His people. It will be a straight shot with no hindrance. His glory will be revealed and nothing will impede people's ability to see what He has done. The removal of obstacles goes on further in verses 6-8. through eight describing how no person can stop what God says He will do. The Word of God is not mere letters on a page. The Word of God is living and active. It is the power of God in action. Because when God speaks, it happens. When He promises, it is fulfilled. Men and women, kings and rulers will live and die, but the Word of God will always be fulfilled, no matter how hard people try to stop it. The people trying to stop it may be the very enemies of God. But sometimes the people stopping God's Word are the people of God who are sinning and seem to nullify God's promises. It's not going to stop God. God will be faithful to His Word. If God has said, you are my people, then nothing that Judah or Babylon or we can do can stop His people from being His people. And so in verses 9 through 11, God announces He is for them and rescue is coming. That yes, there is bad news of this exile, but there is good news that God is on the way. His arm is coming with the strength to defeat the enemies, but also the tenderness to hold and protect His people as a shepherd cares for his sheep. And so these 11 verses are abundantly clear that the Lord is for His people. They are still His people. He is still their God. He has not abandoned them. He will rescue them as He has done in ages past. That if God's people are suffering, it is not because God has stopped loving them. Because God and His Word has pledged that love to be true. And God keeps His Word. If we are God's people, we can know that He loves us in the midst of our suffering. And that is comfort. That is comfort, He would say, for my people. And to further comfort His people, He doesn't just answer the one doubt, does God love me? He answers the second doubt, is the Lord able to help us in verses 12 through 26? We may think that God wants to help us, that He does love us, He just can't do anything about it. That God like, doesn't have service in Babylon, like a bad cell company. So, sorry, I, what? No, can't save you. 
We may think that maybe Judah failed to sacrifice in the right way and God wasn't fed with the offerings of the Old Testament system. And so he's weak and can't help them. And Isaiah would say to all of that, that is nonsense. Do you remember who your God is? He is immeasurably great in every way. And he reminds them through a series of rhetorical questions that summed up, you could ask him in this way, have you forgotten we're talking about God here? Not some king, not some idol. We are talking about the Lord God Almighty. What would he be unable to do? And so Isaiah reminds them of five truths here and all of these rhetorical questions, reminding them God can and will save. First, he reminds them about God's transcendence. Well, that's a big word. We'll go with size. That's a smaller word. God's size, okay? God's size. Question 12 is reminiscent of the song, He's got the whole world in His hands. Who has measured the waters, as in all of the waters everywhere, in the hollow of His hand? Who has marked off heavens like this? God has. God can. God is bigger than we imagine and everything else is tiny in comparison. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before Him. He says they're like a drop in the bucket when He looks at them. If we think God can't do anything, it's certainly not because He's too small. For he is far bigger than we can imagine. Second, Isaiah reminds us about God's wisdom. Whom did he, God consult? Who made God understand? Who taught God justice and knowledge? If we think God can't help because he doesn't understand the problem, then think again. What could God possibly not know? Doesn't God understand everything far better than we ever could? He is infinitely wise and therefore able to address problems rightly. Third, Isaiah helpfully reminds us we serve a living God. He says in verse 18, To whom will you liken him? An idol? How could God be defeated by these idols of the other nations that people made them out of metal and covered them in gold and they actually had to secure them to a table so they wouldn't fall over? Okay? Okay. The only movement those gods did was accidental when the ground shook. Our God is living and active and on the move. He cannot be defeated by these false gods. Isaiah 4 reminds them of the sovereignty of God, how He rules over all things as King. That God is a permanent fixture, unlike the rulers of the nations. They rise and sprout and are blown away by death. The Lord, on the other hand, is eternal. He has existed from the beginning and will never cease to exist. How could a God like this not have the power to just shake things up and bring His people home from Babylon? He is Lord over all. Isaiah 5, his fifth and final rhetorical questions deal with God as the Creator. Other nations worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. And Isaiah reminds them, who made them all? In fact, God knows how many there are up there. He knows them all by name. 
It is as if we made a project, like a gardening project, and we planted different flower or vegetable seeds all in our garden. Someone could ask us, oh, tell me about your garden. And we could say, oh yeah, well here's this and this and the tomatoes and the cucumbers and all of this and here are the flowers. That's what God is like with the stars of the galaxies. Oh yeah, over there, those are pretty, aren't they? Look at those. How can a God with power like that not be able to save His people from Babylon or to help us in whatever suffering we face? Isaiah is writing to God's people saying, have you forgotten who God is? How can you doubt His power? Do you really think He couldn't save you right now if He wanted to? Brothers and sisters, hear that Isaiah's questions are answered. The doubts that we have are answered. That we have a powerful God that we worship who is able. And so Isaiah answers these two doubts. That God does care and He does have the power. And one commentator writes, Apparent delay never means either a lack of awareness, lack of love and care, or lack of ability, lack of power on his part. And yet we're left asking the question, but so why the delay? You obviously love. You've got lots of power. Why the delay? Looking at the rest of chapter 40, Isaiah would say that the delay is our opportunity to trust in God by waiting on Him. Waiting. Yay! An opportunity to wait, Isaiah tells us. In our hyper-efficient, on-demand world, we do everything in our power to avoid waiting. I want two-day shipping. No, next-day shipping. Wait! Is one-hour shipping available? Yes, it is in some parts of the world. We spend countless hours researching trips to Disney World so we don't have to spend countless hours in line at Disney World. We do everything we can not to wait. If our doctor doesn't call us in the first five minutes of business hours with our test results, we are on the phone with the Better Business Bureau saying, this guy needs to be fired and cast out as a leper. We are watching a video on YouTube thinking, another 15-second ad? Are you kidding? This is forever. We can't wait. We hate waiting. And I don't mean to make light of it entirely. Because we are thinking about waiting in suffering. We are thinking about people who are waiting for God to heal them in some way. To relieve whatever problems they have. That's no laughing matter. Because when we suffer, we would prefer that our suffering doesn't last one second more than it has to. And yet, in this passage, Isaiah says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. The strength that seems to be sapped by suffering is renewed by waiting. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Since we're obviously terrible at waiting. 
First, waiting on the Lord is knowing that God is our only help, and so we wait till He is ready to help us. Why do we endure such long lines at the DMV? Because they are the only people who can renew our driver's license. We can't go anywhere else. Amazon will not renew your driver's license with two-day shipping. They won't. Only the DMV will, and so we wait on them. Our waiting on the Lord is an acknowledgement that He's our only help. And so we wait for Him. He may help us through other means like medicine or counselors or a new job, but we know His sovereign hand is behind every good gift that we have. Second, waiting on the Lord is a confidence in knowing that He will eventually act. On a family vacation last year, we got in line to ride an exciting ride, and we knew we would have to wait about two hours. But we endured the wait because we knew eventually we would get to ride this ride we wanted to ride. We waited with the confidence that it would be worth it. Similarly, we wait for the Lord in our suffering, knowing that He will eventually act. His action may not be until Jesus returns and raises the dead and gives us new and resurrected bodies that are free from that cancer or free from the sin that we are struggling with. But even if we wait until that day, we trust that the Lord will indeed act. So then how does that waiting renew our strength so that we are less weary than youths? Now, I think youths is really the wrong translation here because I... I am familiar somewhat with teenagers. And weariness seems to strike me as an apt description of youths, that they don't get out of bed and all of this stuff. I think um, toddlers or preschoolers, and they're, they're renewed and less weary than those three to five-year-olds that come downstairs at the crack of dawn with the limitless energy that if bottled could power the world. That is our alternative energy right there. And yet he says that if we wait on the Lord, we will be less weary than that. How? Well, Isaiah gives us a very helpful example. An eagle soaring in the sky. When you see birds like eagles or turkey vultures, that's more like our style here. When you see them soaring in the sky, they don't appear to exert a lot of effort. They soar on the power of the wind. And if they tried to exert a lot of effort, flapping their wings, it would actually be somewhat counterproductive. Because they already have a continuous source of strength as their wind. They soar best when they are relying on the seemingly limitless wind that can lift them high in the sky. Waiting on the Lord is like that. When we frantically try to relieve our own suffering, we end up worsening the situation. But when we wait on the Lord, knowing that He will relieve our suffering in His time, even if that time is when Christ returns, we have a continuous source of strength. Because our strength then is in the Good Shepherd who holds us like the wind holds up the wings of the eagles. But the shepherd does not have us wait in idleness. Waiting does not mean just waiting to do anything. No. 
Rather, while we wait, we are like sheep in the pasture being cared for by the good shepherd. And we are fed with the word of God that stands forever. And in that word, we read of the Father's promises that are sure to be fulfilled. In that word, we read of the work of Jesus Christ that is sufficient to save us from our sins and is the promise that we will rise again with Him someday. In that word is the work of the Holy Spirit's ongoing work to change us so that our hearts learn to wait on Him in whatever suffering we face. The question of why we continue to suffer is not an easy one. And the answer of wait on the Lord is not the answer we necessarily want to hear. But in Isaiah 40, we are shown both the faithful love and immeasurable power of God who is our strength and who is with us and for us no matter what suffering we are going through. Thanks be to God that that is our God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for assuring us that you care for us, your people. We thank you for assuring us that you are powerful. And Lord, we pray that you would please help us to trust in you in whatever suffering we are facing or whatever suffering we will face soon. And we pray that there would be a clear path, a path cleared like the one John the Baptist cleared when he called on people to repent. And so, Lord, help us to repent of our sin. And to look and see that the ultimate relief of the suffering of the world is not to be found in some future medicine. It is not to be found in peace on earth. The ultimate end of the suffering of the world and of our suffering is at the return of Jesus Christ when He will make all things new. And so we long for that day, O God. May the mountains be made low and the valleys be lifted high so there is a clear runway for our Christ, our Good Shepherd, to come and hold us in His arms and show us the weight has been worth it. May we treasure that Lord in Christ as we pray in his name. Amen.